Welcome to Copyright Clearance and his podcast series. I'm Christopher Kennealy for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, November 10th, 2017. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me again today from his office in Manhattan. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Well, Election Day was this past Tuesday, and it saw Democrats and Republicans on ballots around the country. But what many of our listeners may not realize is that libraries were on the ballot, too, in quite a number of states. So please tell us, how did libraries fare at the polls? Yeah, that's exactly right. As there are usually on every Election Day, there were a number of ballot initiatives involving libraries across the country. Uh, And, you know, we hear a lot about the, the national policy stuff in terms of politics when it comes to libraries. But really, when it comes to libraries, especially, all politics is local. So how did libraries do on those ballot initiatives? Well, we looked to our friend John Kraska at the library lobbying organization Every Library for news on this. And as John reports, Every Library was able to identify and track about 37 library measures on the November 7th ballot across 16 states. And he concludes overall that it was a really good night for libraries. As of Wednesday, there were still several measures that were out or the votes weren't yet counted or are yet to be reported, but it appears that 27 of those 37 initiatives passed uh, and just three lost, and there's still about six or seven that are still too early to tell. Among the big winners in New Jersey, and not just because they uh, dumped their very unpopular governor, Chris Christie, uh, they also passed a statewide New Jersey library construction bond, which will mean $125 million for in matching funds for local library construction projects. So a big boom for libraries in the Garden State. And Kraska also reports that uh, measures, similar measures passed in Denver and in Dallas. Uh, Houston passed a major citywide building bond that's going to help create multiple new facilities over the next generation. So I won't run down all the winners here, um, but I can urge you to go on to the Every Library website, which is www.everylibrary.org, or check out the weekly rundown on library news at publishersweekly.com. And while you're at the Every Library site, if you do happen to go, you'll notice a big orange button there that says donate now. And I would encourage you to do so uh, if you are a library supporter. And certainly library supporters uh, in the Miami area should know that they can hear John Kratzka in person next weekend, Andrew, at the annual book fair on the campus of Miami-Dade Community College. He'll be there along with Meredith Schwartz, executive editor of Library Journal, Ray Baker, the director of the Miami-Dade Public Library, and yourself, Andrew Albanese. I'll be there, too, to moderate a discussion. We'll be looking at the public library in a disruptive age that takes place Sunday, November 19th at 11 a.m. in room 7106, Building 7 on that Miami-Dade Community College campus. We'll explore why libraries still matter in a world of smartphones and what can be done to ensure their survival. It's all part of a free-to-all weekend of programs that make up the largest public book fair in the United States. And Details are available at miamibookfair.com. When Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese has more analysis of the politics of public libraries. I'm Christopher Keneally. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio. 
I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's podcast, Beyond the Book. It's Friday, November 10th, and Andrew Albanese joins me from the Publishers Weekly Newsroom. We're looking at election returns from earlier this week, Andrew, and what they may mean for libraries and readers. And much of the punditry on the various gubernatorial and mayoral races saw the results as a repudiation of President Donald Trump on Tuesday. Indeed, Trumpism has been a rallying point for libraries and librarians since the 2016 election, as we both prepared pack for the Miami Book Fair. Give us a preview. What are the outlines of the debate over libraries at the national level? Yes, you know, I'm really looking forward to our discussion in Miami, and especially to having John Kratzka there, because there's really no one with more experience and more insight when it comes to winning political battles on the ground for readers and, by extension, for publishers and authors through the work of libraries. So, on the national scale, you're absolutely right that, that Donald Trump is really, how do I say this politely, he's focused, shall we say, the library community's efforts. Uh, and our listeners may recall, uh, Trump especially rallied librarians at the beginning of the year by proposing to eliminate virtually all federal library funding from the budget. Now, the American Library Association Washington office, which has an outstanding staff on the Hill, rallied librarians who really rose to the occasion, as they usually do. And in the latest budget bill that was passed by the House, all library funding was restored. And that was hailed as a huge victory for libraries. But here's the thing. We don't yet have a final budget. Uh, And now we have a new tax reform bill. And once again, libraries find themselves under the gun. In May of this year, I visited Washington for National Legislative Day, and Emily Sheketoff, who is the just left the ALA as their Washington office director, this was one of her final speeches she gave, she warned librarians to to stay involved, and that if the GOP put forward its tax reform bill as it was envisioned, which is pretty much how it's been introduced, it will mean less money and a big budget squeeze for libraries. And that's because it'll come down in a few ways. You know, one is that we'll see budget cuts at the national level uh, that will likely be on the table to reduce deficits that would be included thanks to the giveaways in the latest tax bill. And of course, at the state level, that would mean there would be less money for states coming from the federal government, which would mean that States would have to tighten their belts, and one of the ways that states almost always tighten their belts is you know, to reduce discretionary spending, such as the kind of money that flows to libraries. So we'll be talking about all of this in Miami in much more detail. But so far, librarians' resistance to Trump has been successful, and in some ways it's been energizing for them. But the battle really is just getting started, and it is a battle that librarians are on the front lines of, but also a battle that's really very important to the entire reading community, the entire reading ecosystem, uh, whether that's publishers, authors, or readers. Well, on another battlefront, this time a legal one, a court this week in a very rare move issued an order requiring ISPs, Internet Service Providers, and search engines to block access to something called SciHub, which has been called the Pirate Bay for Academic Research. It was founded in 2011 by a Kazakhstani. First time we've heard that word on Beyond the Book, I think. Someone from Kazakhstan in Central Asia. She's a graduate student there. Alexandra Elbayakan. And she, uh, or I should say earlier, this year, the American Chemical Society won a $15 million default judgment against her and the SciHub website. So now we have this injunction from the court. And you have some thoughts, Andrew, on all of this and where we may be heading. 
Yeah, so it's a case that we've really not talked much about, and I haven't covered really in detail at Publishers Weekly, and I'll explain why in a moment. But just before last weekend, federal judge Leone Brinkema issued an order requiring that ISPs and search engines basically stop working with or providing services to Sci-Hub, which, as you say, uh, is an effort based in Kazakhstan to make all research freely available. And they aren't even trying to hide that fact. We should be clear about what Sci-Hub is. You go to the Sci-Hub website, which is still available despite the order as of today, and you can read for yourself. They call themselves the first pirate website in the world to provide mass public access to millions of research papers. And they actually state on the site that their goal is to eliminate copyright for research materials. Now, as you know, the American Chemical Society sued Sci-Hub in federal court. Uh, and as you would expect, Sci-Hub didn't even bother to respond. They didn't come to court. They didn't even file a shred of paper in the case. And the result is that ACS was granted a, a $15 million default judgment, which, of course, they will never collect on. And actually, Brinkema added another $5 million or so to that in her final order. But what's getting more attention here, and what I'm going to be focusing on in Publishers Weekly in the, in the next week, is the injunction, which would actually block U.S. sites from hosting or showing Sci-Hub, uh, whether it's Google on a search engine or whether it's an ISP, would actually block Sci-Hub from being seen in the U.S. And that's something that's really very very rare. And as you say, quite different. Going after pirate sites uh, goes back to the days of Napster, of course, more than 15 years ago. So this injunction is notable in your view. And I guess the first question to ask is, could it work? Yeah, well, it's, it's notable to me because it suggests that the courts could follow this playbook and start issuing more orders to block sites that carry infringing content. And that, I fear, is a slippery slope. Uh, but that's for another day. Uh, we're already starting to hear some pushback from the tech community on this uh, and from free speech advocates. But the question really is, as you say, can it work? And no, I really don't believe it can work. I, mean, I think if there's one thing we've learned in the digital age so far is that technology always outpaces the reach of the law, for better or for worse. And Everyone I've spoken to about this injunction says that Sci-Hub is a step ahead and is going to probably remain a step ahead. Uh, they know they're breaking the law. They want to break the law because they believe that this is what's going to drive the change that they're fighting for. So I think chances are pretty slim that they're going to let this injunction stop them from using technology that's going to stay a step ahead of this injunction. Well, those lawbreakers at Sci-Hub might have been looking for coverage on themselves in PW, but they hadn't seen it so far. Why is that going to change? Why are you now looking to focus on Sci-Hub uh, in your coverage? Yeah, so I haven't really covered the case much, and for two reasons. One, that the lawsuit was uncontested, so there really wasn't a legal argument there to report on. Uh, there was just some claims by the ACS, and without a dance partner for them in court, there really wasn't much there to report on. Uh, and second, it's like, I do cover the open access movement, and I've been covering the open access movement really since it started back when I was a reporter at Library Journal, uh, and before that uh, for a, a magazine that I used to write for called Lingua Franca. But Sci-Hub is not an open access movement. Sci-Hub is a pirate site. Now, its ideals mesh with the aims of open access, and it's certainly pushing the, the goal of open access. But my feeling is, Ben, that you know, reporting on a pirate site really just gives it more profile. And I haven't really wanted to do that here. I've just been sort of waiting for this to play out of its own accord before really reporting in depth on it. But now I sort of have to, because... With the injunction, there really is a deeper story here. Uh, and I think that the publishers who are, are bringing this, backing this current suit, including the ACS, may not be happy with the way things end up going here. And that's because 
know, there's this phenomenon known as the Streisand effect. The Streisand effect basically posits that in cases where you attempt to remove or censor information, the unintended consequence is that it ends up publicizing the information all the more widely. To be perfectly blunt, Sci-Hub is thrilled with this lawsuit. For them, it is turning into free publicity. And remember, we're not talking about kids not paying for music, too. We're talking about scientists who are interested in accessing research. And the thing is, even if many of those scientists are put off by Sci-Hub's piracy, and many of them are, they also, many of them, agree with Sci-Hub's mission. You know, and we saw this just a few days ago when Stephen Hawking issued his support for open access. Uh, it was the open access week uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there was all kinds of talk in the media about open access. And I'll just quote Stephen Hawking here. Anyone anywhere in the world should have free, unhindered access to my research, not just to my research, but to the research of every great and inquiring mind across the spectrum of human understanding. Now, to be clear, that statement could be on the Sci-Hub website, and you wouldn't tell the diff- be able to tell the difference that it was from Hawking or from uh, the alleged pirate site. And the problem is, publishers think they're fighting a pirate site here, but what they're really fighting are their own constituents. And you know, something has to change. You know, I honestly, I I don't know what the answer is here or what the best strategy is for publishers, but I can say that by now history suggests that litigating these, this issue, especially this open access issue is not really a terribly effective way to go. And even if you manage to somehow block and shut down Sci-Hub, it's animating principle is shared by scientists as evidenced by Stephen Hawking. And you can't shut that down. You know, I know publishers would prefer to transition to, uh, at their own pace to open access, a pace that would satisfy their shareholders and their business plans. But despite the recent court rulings in this case, I think the message to publishers here is they're going to have to pick up the pace a little. Well, finally, Andrew, we must note with some sadness the passing on Monday of Sally D. Decker, who was Education Director for Book Expo and a well-regarded consultant to publishers and other publishing industry players. In September, the Book Industry Study Group presented Sally with its Lifetime Service Award, something she had earned over decades of devotion to the book industry, working in sales and in marketing. Whenever I picked up the phone to speak with Sally, I always break myself, Andrew. I knew the exchange was going to be fast-paced, no-nonsense, and always on point. Keeping up with Sally D. Decker took work. Just gutted over this news. Uh, you know, I had heard that Sally was, was sick, but um, I, I was not prepared for this at all. Anyone who's worked in the publishing industry, anyone who's ever been to a BEA, worked with BISG, has benefited from, from Sally's work. From She did great work uh, putting together education programs. And she's really going to be missed. And I know we're going to miss her in terms of talking about the issues that we've been talking about today. She would have put together a bang-up program for BEA or for BISG or something talking about these very issues. Um, Our thoughts and prayers are with Sally's family. And, uh, yeah, just really sad news. Indeed it is. Thanks for that tribute, Andrew Albanese. And thank you for joining me today and every Friday on CCC's Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Next on Beyond the Book, whether an organization serves only a local market or does business in many countries across the globe, its leadership has responsibility to welcome diversity and difference in the workplace. Publishers who set an inclusive tone will see a change in management and in the mirror. In business, says consultant Nancy Roberts, maintaining an inclusive workplace means addressing more than cultural differences. She encourages leaders and others to identify and nurture a range of diversity strategies. 
as management guru Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So simply putting a diversity strategy in place is probably not going to be enough. You really need to develop an inclusive culture so that those diversity strategies that bring different people into the business can create an environment where they're going to succeed. Setting the diversity tone next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries Rights Direct and Nexus drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.